I have become uh, really fascinated by customer service uh, and by specifically a, a culture that surrounds customer service. I, that, that culture piece is really, really interesting to me. How you can walk into almost any Chick-fil-A around the country and, and have a good experience. I don't know if it's Jesus chicken or what it is, right? <laughs> Um, what, what, that, what that is, but there is something about you enter into any Chick-fil-A, maybe it's Southern hospitality, whatever, but they have established a culture of excellence with customer service. And they love to take care of people and they, and they love to help people. And you kind of counter that against any other number of chains, but you, you walk into any of these other chains and sometimes like, am I irritating you ordering a sub, right? You know, you seem really ticked off and depressed that I'm even in here uh, giving your organization money. And there is just something very interesting about how a culture of unhappiness or almost a serve me mentality can find its way into organizations. And you can visit that restaurant in Tennessee, you can visit that restaurant in Ohio, you can visit that restaurant in, in Michigan, and it's the same. Or there is a, a element of we're here to serve the customer, we're here to love the customer, we're here as servants, and you can walk into any of those organizations anywhere over the United States, and it's the same. And here's why I, I say all that, is I think that marriages develop a culture that there is a culture that is probably embedded in your marriage even, even today. And I believe that the happiest marriages, I'm, I'm gonna just go ahead and put my cards on the table and we're gonna talk about this uh, for the next half hour or so, but I believe that the happiest marriages are the marriages that have developed a servant-oriented mindset. Where, where each person in the marriage is almost trying to outserve the others. And, and the fear of, of service is that, man, if I lay my life down and if I become a servant, that I'm going to be unsatisfied and I'm never going to get what I want and it's just going to, I'm going to be run over. And it's so interesting because the opposite is true. When you lay down your life for the good of another person, when you become a servant, it actually leads you to more happiness. And this comes directly and was a core value of Jesus and of the gospel, all right? This is uh, the gospel marriage is the name of the series. And so embedded in this good news is the idea that Jesus, our Savior, came as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve, right? So he came as a servant. So um, let me show you, first of all, what Jesus taught and then we're gonna, I'm going to show you what Jesus did, all right? So there's this really interesting story I'll put up on the screen for you. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, all right? These guys have also been called to know the sons of thunder. And this is, it's funny that this is in this text because Scott Monette and I were just kind of planning out some future series. And we're like, what haven't we talked about? What should we do? And uh, one of us, I can't remember which of us said it first, but one of us said, we should do a series on the sons of thunder, Right? Doesn't that just sound like a cool series, The Sons of Thunder, like wrestling name or something? But we're like, I don't think there's enough material on these two guys. So we've got this story and like one other. So it would be a very short series. But um, the sons of Zebedee came over and spoke to him. Teacher, we want you to do us a favor. Right? What is your request, he asked. They replied, nothing big, right? When you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit on the places of honor next to you. One on your right and one on your left, All right? Could you just do us a little favor, Jesus? We want to be in charge. No, no big deal, right? But Jesus said to them, oh, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Yeah. 
Yes, replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. <laughs> You're correct, all right? Um, and baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the other 10 disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Why didn't we think of that, right? So <clears throat> Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is a type of leader that flaunts their authority. They love positional authority, uh, mostly because they don't have any relational authority. There's two types of authority, positional and relational. And relational authority comes when people follow you and submit to you because they respect you. Right, positional authority is says this is happening because I don't know if you noticed, but my name's on the door, right? Or I don't know if you've noticed this. I am your 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 boss. My name's the the name of the company. Whatever the case may be, that is positional authority. You are going to do this because I said so, and they demand that people do do what they tell them to do. And, and you've worked for people like this. You've worked for people that are like, hey, can I ask a couple questions about this? So I don't know if you noticed the name on the front of the door. You're, you're going to do it. And, and they just kind of exert positional authority. And this will work for a while, but eventually the company and the relationships will no longer work because the relationship culture is not there. So positional authority can work for a while, but if relational authority isn't there, it will all begin to fall apart. And men, every man in this room, I want you to understand as we get this started this morning, I believe with all of my heart that God has placed you in a position of leadership in your family. God has placed you men in a position of leadership in your family. Here's how the Bible verse that, that we're going to read later says it. The Bible verse later says you are the head of the household. And here's what that means. It's kind of Bible language. What it means is that God has called you men to be a spiritual leader in your family, to set the tone, to set the example, to chart the course spiritually. But it will only work, this will only work if you have the relational authority in your family. Years and years ago, I was counseling uh, with a guy, uh, a man and a woman, and they were having really terrible marriage problems. And uh, they came in, into my office and they were telling me several stories. And the wife told a story about how they were in an argument about something. And the husband, in kind of a fit of anger, said, I'm the head of the household and you just need to do what I'm telling you to do. Eh. Wrong-o. Wrong-o, right? That, 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 that's told me everything that I need to hear. You don't have the relationship with your wife that you need to have. So you're trying to lay down your position. And that is never going to work. When you try to exert your position, when the relationship isn't there, it begins to all fall apart. That the head of the household thing, just like Jesus with the church, Jesus is the head of the church, just like that, the, the, it works best 
when the relationship is there. And Jesus demonstrated this type of love for us. So biblically, when the Bible says that you're the head of the household, it's not really as luxurious as it sounds. You know what it means? It means that you are the chief and number one servant. Doesn't that sound awesome, men, right? You're the chief and number one servant. That this is not a position you wield like a sword. It's a position you bow to like a servant. Just like Jesus is the head of the church. We'll look at that passage again in a minute. But I'm telling you, the greatest leaders are the greatest servants. And when you lead the way Jesus led and you love the way Jesus loved and you lay your life down the way Jesus laid his life down, you don't have to ever play the I'm the head of the household card. Uh, Your family will follow your lead. So men and women, all right, this isn't just a, a sermon for men, but I'll play again. Men and women, we are called to serve. So I showed you what Jesus taught. Now let me show you what Jesus did. All right. So there's a really interesting story in the New Testament. Uh, and let me kind of set the background of this story. That typically in the first century, when you would come in for a meal, there would be a servant or a slave that was hired to do the feet washing, all right? Uh, to wash everybody's feet. And the reason for that was twofold. One is you live in the Middle East. And a lot of times you were wearing kind of open sandals, and so they'd get dusty and animal stuff in the roads and all, all that stuff. You'd get stuff on your feet, and so there would be a servant there to, there to wash them. The other thing that would happen is at these types of meals, you would recline. And so a lot of times your feet would kind of be in the region of another person. So you can imagine sitting down for a meal, and someone's dusty, animal excrement-laden feet, you get what I'm saying, are in the face of your neighbor, right? That doesn't work. And so a lot of times they would hire a person to come in and wash everybody's feet. Well, the disciples arrived for this meal and nobody's been hired to do this. Some experts think maybe Jesus sent the the servant home, that Jesus wanted wanted to teach something. And I just picture the disciples at this meal and they're getting uh, more and more angry, more and more upset that, you know, that how on earth did no one line up the servant to wash everybody's feet? And Jesus walks in and he pours a, a basin of water and he begins to wash his own disciples' feet. And then here's what he said after. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Make no mistake about it, Jesus had a position. Jesus has positional authority. He is our teacher, he is our Lord. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. As I, as I have set you as an example, you should do as I have done for, for, for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You want to have a blessed marriage? Become a servant in your marriage. You want to have a blessed marriage? Wash each other's feet. Jesus set this example for us. That Jesus set the, and here's the example he set for us. There are no jobs that are beneath us. I very often, a lot of the counseling I do, um, and I don't know if I'm the best counselor or not, I do pastoral counseling. That this is what God says about this subject. I'm not a licensed therapist or a licensed counselor or anything like that. But a lot of the counseling that I do for people in the community and, and, and everywhere else, a lot of the counseling has to do with household chores. That a lot of marriages ended up divided over this idea that one feels like the other is not pulling their way. And I would encourage you uh, that we will follow the example of Jesus and that there are no household jobs in our marriage that are beneath us. 
So guys and, 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 and women for that matter, I've, I've heard both say this. I would encourage you to not say things like, I don't do diapers. I don't clean to- That was an awkward laugh, all right? Uh, something's going on in this room, all right? So uh, I don't do diapers. I don't do toilets. I don't do dishes. I want you to think for a moment about the message that sends to your spouse. That I believe this is beneath me, but I don't believe it's beneath you. Am I preaching? I want you to consider for a moment the message that sends to your spouse. That I don't do this, but you should do this. Jesus set us a really good example here. There are not jobs that are beneath us. The other example he set, in addition to washing feet, and thank goodness we're moving on. We are moving on, all right? Has to do with the cross and the gospel. Let me show you what Paul said. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself... Say it with me. What did he make himself? One more time. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that of the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the second example of Jesus. And this is hard, but serving others is not always fun. It's not. It's, it doesn't always feel good, but it's what is necessary. That, that is the, the, the message of the cross. That the cross was not fun or easy. It was, it was very difficult, but Jesus accomplished an unbelievable thing by becoming a servant. All right? So I want you to think about you know, the state of your marriage right now, wherever that happens to be. What if something unbelievable could happen and the reason that it happened was you decided to follow the example of Jesus and become a servant. Uh, Emerson Egrich in his book, Love and Respect, uh, that I often will hand uh, to married couples. It's a really excellent book, but he talks about the crazy cycle in that book. That what ends up happening in some marriages is that one person gets hurt, and it doesn't matter kind of who kind of starts this, but one gets hurt and says, I'm not feeling loved, I'm not feeling respected, I'm not feeling served, and so I am going to now withhold my service to my spouse. And then they get hurt, and now they kind of reciprocate, and he calls it this kind of crazy cycle where we're just refusing to love and serve each other because we've been hurt. And the truth of the matter is, is that someone has to step out and break the ice. Someone has to be a hero. Someone has to make a difference. And when your marriage has been in a crazy cycle for a really long time, it, it, this is super awkward for one person to say, you know what, fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one to, to move first. I'm going to be the one to break the ice. I am going to begin to serve. It's awkward. It's hard. It's not going to feel genuine. But just like Jesus, what if you could accomplish something great by doing that? What if you could accomplish something great by doing that? By being the one to take the first step. And this is one of those things that is embedded in the gospel that I really think will make all the difference in the world in our marriages is that when we choose to serve. Years later, the Apostle Paul 
This is really, really good marriage advice from a guy that was never married. Right? Paul, Paul you, you know he's inspired by the Holy Spirit because this is really, really great marriage advice. He's getting ready to address marriage, and here's what he says. It's up on the screen for you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right? And then he's going to go on to describe it, and we're going to study this passage for the rest of our time together. But Paul starts out kind of his feelings on marriage with this idea. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And submission is not a popular word, so let me define it for you because I think it's important that we do that. Submission is the voluntary and joyful service of another person. Voluntary and joyful. Voluntary and joyful service of another person. It's not subjugation. It's not slavery. Right? Subjugation and slavery are the forced service of another person. Right? That, that's the definition of slavery. It's the definition of subjugation that through threat of violence, we force another person to, to serve. And that's abuse. And that's sinful. And that's wrong. But submission says, I am voluntarily and joyfully going to lay down my life for my spouse. It is an attitude that is not forced upon us. It is an attitude that we choose for the good of our marriage. So say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down my life for my spouse. And now Paul's going to go on to describe uh, what this looks like. He's going to start with wives. Uh, so wives, I'm going to start with you because the text does. Rest assured we're getting to the men. So we're going to be okay, okay? Because <laughs> as soon as I start reading this text, you're going to be, I, I knew it, right? You know, no, we're going to get to the men, all right? But here's what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. And before we get too, like, brittle about this, remember the very, pre, the, the very next previous verse to this. What did the very previous verse to this say? Submit to one another, Right? So what he's teaching us is this is what submission looks like for the wife, and then later this is what submission looks like for the husband. This is a text about submitting to one another. But he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So wives, you know one of the ways that you can serve your husband in your marriage? One of the ways you can serve your husband in your marriage is by looking to them to lead. By respecting him enough to let him lead. Now, not every man has the spiritual gift of leadership, but let me tell you something about every man. Every man has the desire, because God has placed this inside of them, every man has the desire to lead their family and to lead their family well. So wives, the greatest gift you can give to your husband is this. Look at me, wives. The greatest gift you can give to your husband is believe in him. Believe in that man. Believe in him. It is the greatest gift you can give your husband is to believe in him and follow him and allow him to be the, the spiritual leader. Several years ago, our culture engaged in an attack on men. And men started to be portrayed as befuddled, inept, and buffoons. We started to be portrayed as lazy and having no ambition. And now, 10 years later, I am reading all these articles about what happened to our men. What happened to our men? We waged an attack on them. And we robbed them of the very gift that God called them to, the very calling that God placed on their life. We robbed them of the gift of spiritual leadership. That's what happened to our men. 
That, that men want to believe that they can make a difference in their marriage and family. That you can chart the course. You can set the temperature. You can impact your children's lives and change a generation. And men, I want you to know God has placed that inside of you. God has placed inside of you a desire to lead your families. Wives, do you ever want to know why your husband loves superhero movies and action movies? Why his favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard? Because he wants to be a hero. It's not in maturity that he loves superhero movies. He wants to be a hero. He wants to make a difference. He wants to save the day. He wants you to look at us the way Lois Lane looks at Superman. And wives, here's the thing. Here's what Paul is trying to teach us this morning. You can encourage this in your man or you can discourage this. And you're probably doing one or the other. If you are someone who makes all the decisions and has all the control, you are discouraging your man from leadership. If you are sarcastic and you tend to condescend to him, you are discouraging him from leadership. If you have impossibly high standards and are constantly disappointed in him, you are discouraging him from leadership. Submission says, see, this is why I prayed ahead of time to not get amped up. Submission says, I am voluntarily and joyfully going to lay my life down for what my husband needs or my wife needs. And if this is what my guy needs, I'm going to encourage this. If he needs to lead, if he wants to feel heroic, if he wants to make a difference, I'm going to let him lead. Now, let's say what this is not. This is not to say that you don't have your own leadership. Of course you have your own leadership. I believe in co-leadership. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Of course, this doesn't mean you don't have opinions that you've expressed. Of course you express your opinions. That's not to say that you don't have good ideas that should be implemented. Of course you do. This is not to say that you never get your way. Of course you often get your way. But this is to say, if God has placed this inside of him, this desire for leadership, if God has placed this inside of him, I am going to be the type of wife that encourages him to be the leader God created him to be. So I learned this principle a long time ago. It's a preaching principle. So let me just flesh it out just for a moment and I'll apply it here in, in just a minute. That what you preach and what you praise is what will be present. All right? So I tell young preachers, whenever I have an opportunity to talk to them, I tell them that even if you're in a church where the youngest person in your church is 70 years old and you have no children running around your church at all, when you preach, you address young families. And they always have the same reaction. They say, I feel dumb doing that. Because there are no young families in my church. There's no young people running around. I say, no, you address young families when you preach because what you preach is what will be present. So I know it feels silly now, but you preach to young families. Like everyone's grandparents, you preach to young families because what you preach is what will be present. What you praise is what will be repeated. Right? So I said, when you see something really good happening in your church, you praise that to kingdom come, and I guarantee you'll see more of it. So here's my question. Wife, wives, what are you preaching to your man? What are you preaching? You're preaching a sermon. What are you preaching? Does he hear you complaining to your sister about how lazy he is? Does he see what you write on social media that is supposedly cleverly designed, but he knows it's about him and he knows you're disappointed in him again? What are you preaching? 
because what you are preaching is what will be present. So can I encourage you, start preaching a different sermon. Start preaching a sermon about what you see in him, what you love about him, the leadership that you see in him. What are you praising? I hope that you have a culture of praising in your marriage. What are you praising when you see your guys, some of you, the state of your marriage, you're going to have to catch him doing the right thing. But catch him doing the right thing and praise it to kingdom come. Because what is praised is what is present. Encouragement goes a long way. So what are you preaching and what are you praising? Husbands, here's Paul's advice to you. Wives, we're done. All right. Take a deep breath. All right. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Guys, your act of submission to your wife. This is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives are looking and encouraging their husband to lead. Men, your act of submission to your wife is to make sure that she feels loved and cherished and and adored. And I want you to consider the gospel for just a minute. I want you to consider how Jesus loves the church and what he went through to demonstrate his love. Because Jesus, in this illustration, he's the groom and the church is the bride. And so I want you to make it your mission over the next coming weeks. I want you to make it your mission to make sure your wife feels like the most loved person in the room. So how do I do that? Excellent question. All right. I don't know. No, no, I'm kidding. All right. (laughs) I got nothing. All right. No. Um. In his best-selling book, The Five Love Languages of Love, uh, The Five Love Languages, excuse me, um, the author of that book uh, makes a really interesting point. He says, everybody has a love language. Everybody has a way that they receive love. Now, he says in that book that one of the mistakes that we make is that we tend to love the people in our life with our natural love language because it is natural to us and it's easy for us, right? This is a mistake, Because what you want to discover is what your spouse's love language is. And you want to love them the way that they need to be loved. This is about me. I stopped loving the way that I just feel like love is, which is my natural tendency is to love the way that I receive love. And I need to find out how Cheryl wants to be loved. What what, what is valuable to her? Now, thankfully, she and I happen to have the same love language. So this has always been a little bit easier for us because of that. But often, couples will have kind of different love languages. Not everybody has the same love language. And so if your love languages are are different, you need to discover what your spouse's is and love them the way that God created them to be loved. So you could get that book, Five Love Languages, and you could read that book. Um, And after the book, have this conversation. Or if you don't want to read the book or whatever, you can still have this conversation. And I'm going to put the question up on the screen for you. Next slide. Here's the, here's the conversation. You look at your wife, 
and you say, how can I love you better? How can I love you better? Because your goal is to love her the way Christ loves the church. And if you don't know what that looks like, and you don't know what that means, and you don't know how she receives love, this is a really, and you're like, this feels super awkward. It is a little bit, to be honest with you. But you are seeking to love her the way Jesus wants her to be loved. And so you're going to sit down, you're going to have a conversation, and you're going to look her in the eye, and you're going to say, how can I love you better? And listen, I get that for a lot of you, this is intimidating, because when your wife says, I love you, you like grunt back, me too. You know, that, that's the extent of your, your love language, you know. Um, my grandfather used to say, you know, I told my wife 50 years ago that I loved her, and if it ever changes, I'll let her know, right? Um, you know, that's what my grandfather used to say. Not a good idea, right? So a lot of us, you, you, we're not used to talking this way, and we're not used to loving this way, and it can be intimidating. But listen, the first time you did a lot of things, it was intimidating, the first time you played baseball, it was super intimidating. The first time, the fir your first day at work at the new job was super intimidating. Your first date with your wife was super intimidating. I remember just kind of sitting at Applebee's. Yes, I took her on her first date to Applebee's, but, um, and it was uncomfortable. But a lot of good things come as the result of that. So if it was easy, it wouldn't be called submission. This is how you're submitting. It is you're trying to discover, if you don't know, now some of you might know, but if you don't know, you're trying to discover, man, I sincere, this is going to go such a long way for, in, in your marriages, is that I want to love you better. Will you help me to do that? Um, and wives, I just want to encourage you that when this happens, don't respond with, it is about time, right? Oh my goodness, you know, don't, don't do that, all right? Right, you know, praise it up and down. Have a real conversation about, man, this is the way I, I really feel. When, 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 you do, when you do this, I feel loved. And give, give them some examples of when you, when you do this, this is how I feel loved. And you're going to start to piece together how your wife accepts and, and feels loved. And it's all about better serving our spouse and laying down our life for our spouse. Because I'm telling you, um, Jesus loved us and laid down his life for us. So we... The, the, the most profound illustration of this, according to Paul, is marriage. It's marriage. And we have an opportunity in our marriage, and in other relationships too, but we're talking about marriage, to lay down our life for our spouse. And you know why marriage is compared to the gospel in the Bible often? Love one another, lo love your uh, wife like Christ loved the church, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for what he did. You know why it's so often compared um, to, to the gospel and the Bible? Is yeah, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. That's certainly part of it. But listen, listen to this. Victory, in the gospel, victory came through service. Our sins were forgiven. Our eternity was secured by a savior who laid down his life for us. And victory came through service. So some of you are in a marriage right now and you don't see how victory could come. You don't see how victory could come. The gospel teaches us that victory comes through service. And I'm telling you, if you get to the end of your life 
and you've been married, married 50 or 60 years, this is going to be, and people are, you know, you're, you're in an age where, um, you know, some, some people in, in this church are at this age where people are starting to ask you, how'd you do it? How'd you, how'd you stay married for so long? I'm telling you, this is one of the things they're going to say, is we learned to serve and love one another. We learn to lay down our lives. And it's awkward and it's hard and we don't know how to do it because we're not used to having these types of conversations always. We're talking about kids or grandkids or whatever and life just goes on and we never sit down and say, am I loving you well? I want to love you well. Am I loving you well? Teach me how to love you. And, and then we just listen. We're not used to doing this. But I am telling you, when you get to the end of your life and people say, how do you do it? It's going to be victory came through service. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this thing called marriage. And God, you know, uh, you know my heart on this. Um, um, I have been incredibly blessed by you with my wife. I've been incredibly blessed by you. And I just want uh, the people in this church and um, I want us to have I want all of us to have healthy marriages. It's so valuable to me, the gift that you have given me. And so I just pray as we study your word, as we study this series, that my, word, my words would land the way that I intend them to land. I'm so passionate about this. Um, but I hope they come from a pastoral place um, of, of wanting us to love and serve each other well so we don't lose sight of that. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We stand. We're going to sing a song, and uh, love to. Uh, I would love to pray with you um, as uh, we sing this song uh, together before we enter into our communion time.